Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. So glad you're here. It's a special day. 18 years ago on the first Sunday of August, I became your pastor. 18 years. We were all just kids. It's just amazing. I think my first Sunday as pastor 18 years ago, I think there were about 80 people present. Uh, and it was an amazing, amazing time. I really appreciate you as a congregation. I am the luckiest, most blessed man alive to be your pastor. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. You're a blessing in my life and a privilege to serve you. I uh, really want to thank my wife and son who are very, very important part of my ministry always uh, for all of the suppers and vacations interrupted. Uh, all of the nights I'm late for supper, which is bad because I cook supper. So, so if I'm late, <laughs> it is really late. Uh, and uh, and Casey and Wade have been amazing. When we came 18 years ago, our, our son Wade was two years old. He was two years old. He used to leave boogers all over my office uh, because that's what two-year-olds do. Uh, I miss those days. Uh, actually, no, no, now we have Matt Betts, so I don't have to worry about uh, yeah, it. Not, not always booger-free anymore. Open your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Beginning uh, a new message series we started last week entitled The Sovereignty of God. And I want to pick up where we left off last week on the sovereignty of God. Let's go back and define some key terms. The first very important word you need to know is the word sovereignty. How would you define sovereignty? Somebody tell me. How would you define that term, sovereignty? What does it mean to be sovereign? Yeah, I thought some of you were here last week, apparently not. It means to have ultimate power and authority. A sovereign is a ruler, a king. So sovereignty means ultimate power and authority. God has ultimate power. We talked about the word omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God can do all things. Nothing is impossible. And that simply means that he is sovereign over all of the universe. He created all of the universe. But as I said last week, it's one thing to, to affirm that and understand and believe that God is sovereign. But we have to go past that and ask the next question. And that is simply, what does the sovereign God do with his sovereignty? We talked about that last week uh, in effect. And the answer was God sets his sovereignty aside. We see this in Christ. Christ, who in the very nature of God thought it not robbery to, to, to equate himself with God, but emptied himself. He, he set aside everything that pertained to his, his, his divinity and, and took on the form of a servant, even to the point of death on a cross from Philippians chapter 2. What does God do with his sovereignty? You look at Christ and find out that he sets it aside for the sake of saving us. He sets all of that aside, his ultimate power, ultimate control for the sake of saving us to die on a cross for us. So let's go one step further today and ask this question. What does the sovereign God do with his sovereignty when it comes to salvation? Let's go a little bit deeper and talk about God's sovereignty as it applies to our salvation. Again, we talked last week about how there's a certain logic to sovereignty, and some people sort of follow that logic all the way to its end. So if we start out saying God is sovereign, he has ultimate power, that would mean that God must have ultimate control. So if God has ultimate control, some people would say that means everything that happens, happens because God wills it to happen. God chooses that it happen. Everything that happens, ultimately, God has chosen. So here's a question today. If part of what happens is that some of us go to heaven and some of us go to hell in the end, does that mean that God wills for some people to go to hell? Does God choose, does God want some people to go to hell? Let's talk about it. Romans chapter 8 is where we'll start. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8 is got to be the most fantastic chapter in all of Scripture. It's an amazing passage of assurance and confidence, and it's, it's, it's interesting that it can be so controversial and cause so many questions for folks. It starts right here in verse 28. Let's go there. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them, he predestined them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having Chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What can we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. So who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As as the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced That nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God which is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find one of these blue books. Grandma and Grandpa called these hymnals. Would you take one out? Take it out. Go ahead, find one. Grab a hymnal. Turn to hymn number 142. Cafe, you're not missing anything. 142. Old hymn on page 142 called There is a Fountain. How do you know this? You know this hymn? It's gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. 
Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. It's too bad the only voice y'all heard was mine just then because that was good singing. Look at the bottom of the page. Who wrote this song? Who wrote the words? See his name there? William? Yeah, Cooper. I knew y'all would say Cowper. I think it's Cooper. Cooper. William Cooper, born in 1731. It's, it, it's a gorgeous hymn. And William Cooper was a rather amazing poet and a Christian man. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Unfortunately, that's not exactly how it turned out for William Cooper. That prayer that redeeming love would be his theme and, and would be until he died. That's not how it turned out for William Cooper. William Cooper struggled. He, he, he was a preacher's kid. God help him. He was a preacher's kid. His mother died when he was six years old, so he struggled all through his life. He, he really did. He, he, he had a difficult life. Um, at about the age 21, I believe, he, he did become a believer, and he was a radical and, and, and precious believer. He loved the Lord. He became connected with a school of thought, sort of a strand that's been in the Christian family for, for, for centuries. And it's often called Calvinism, sometimes today the Reformed tradition. Uh, but, but, but Cooper became very, very connected with, with many preachers that preached Calvinism. And, and, and there are many in this house even who are familiar. Some of you associate with that. And, and God bless you. Uh, let, let's talk about that today. Um, with Cooper, these particular teachings took hold in his heart. He was very passionate, not just for his Christian faith, but for the Calvinist tradition, which, which teaches something very, very, very particular about salvation. And some of you would know about this, and some of you this is new, so, so listen to me. Uh, Calvinists in that day and even in our day preach a certain kind of doctrine about salvation, typically called predestination. And that is just simply that God, in his sovereignty, he knows beforehand who's going to be saved. And so, in effect, Calvinists would say God chooses in advance. So from all eternity, from all the foundations of the world, God foreknows who's going to be saved, so therefore God predestines those who will be saved. He chooses in advance before you're born, before creation. God chooses, he, he chooses, he elects some to go to heaven. Now, some people only say that, but, but in effect, most people who hear the preaching of Calvinism eventually catch on that that's got a double edge. But whether or not you talk about that or admit that, there's a double edge to that. If you say that God has chosen some for heaven, then inevitably that means that God has willed that some will go to hell. 
Now, again, some of you have probably never heard that, and it may sound shocking to you, but, but honestly, there are many people who've always preached that, and people who still preach that, and many, even in this house, who probably believe something like that. And we're going to talk about that. I'm not trying at this point to be disrespectful or set aside the beliefs people take seriously. But, but understand, for William Cooper, this became a devastating kind of doctrine. As I said, he got saved early on, and he wrote hymns, and he loved the Lord, but but on New Year's Day, about 30 years before he died, he went to church and he heard a sermon. And I don't know what the topic of the sermon was. I, I don't know. But William Cooper said that in church that day, he became completely convinced, completely convinced that he was not a part of the elect. The one who said, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die, he became convinced somehow, and again, I think there was mental illness there, but he can, became convinced that God had no intentions of saving him, that God never chose to save him, that God would never save him, that, that in fact, William Cooper is one of those born simply to, to be condemned to hell for eternity. He became convinced of that. And the last 27 years of his life were lived in utter despair. Can you imagine that? He had already become a Christian. He had lived a life of faith. He had written hundreds of hymns, including this one. He wrote the words, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. But William Cooper became a man who would jump out of windows trying to end his life. He wrote poems about being fallen over, overboard on a ship and everybody sailing off and leaving him to drown. This is how he felt that God, in effect, had thrown him overboard to be condemned forever, had sailed off, and he could never be saved. William Cooper died believing he could never be saved. Now, that kind of preaching, that, that kind of doctrine, and again, some, some of you who who, who, who associate with that doctrine are probably already offended at the way I've presented it. But, but honestly, it's an important way to, to present that sort of preaching. The idea that God chooses some for salvation and, and some for condemnation, does that really sound like God? I just have to say that that double-edged predestination, and it's the only kind. It's the only kind of predestination. If God chooses some for heaven, then inevitably he's, he's already condemned some to hell. It's always double-edged. And I just ask you, is that the God revealed to us in Scripture? And also more importantly, does that sound like Jesus? The God that is revealed to us by sending his son Jesus, does that sound like Jesus? Because I said last week, we have to make sure that anything we say about God, it must somehow ring true with everything we know about Jesus. And does it sound like the character of Jesus to create people, to give them life, to give them breath, only to condemn them for all eternity to hell? Does that sound like the God revealed to us in Jesus? I want to scream, no, no. But some would say, what do you do with passages like this? What do you do with, with the passages? And there are some in Scripture which talk about predestination. They talk about that idea that God knows in advance, and I believe that he does. I believe that he does. That God would know in advance who's going to be saved and, and, and who's not going to be saved. I'm sure God knows that. I would say that he does. But does that logic require us to go ahead and, and say that since God knows that, then therefore God is responsible. God's doing the choosing. 
Go back to me. Verse, let's start with verse 29. For God knew his people in advance, and he predestined them. He chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And, and having predestined them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. There's some who read that to say, obviously, God chooses some. He chooses some. And we all have to admit, obviously, not everybody gets saved. And that is a dilemma. That is a dilemma. That when you look in creation through all of the centuries, all of the generations of the human race, not everybody gets saved. And the scripture makes clear that those who don't get saved, they're one of two places to spend eternity, heaven or hell. And honestly, the thought of, of anybody going to hell should be exasperating. It should be so upsetting, alarming to you to think that anybody could ever be condemned to hell. But obviously some are. Not everybody gets saved. Not everybody wants to get saved. And how do you explain that? Well, some just simply say it's obvious God's chosen some for salvation and others have not been chosen, so they'll just never get saved. And those that God chooses, he sends his Holy Spirit, and he convicts them of their sin, and he sends his provenient, his preparatory grace to soften their hearts and draw them to him. And inevitably, everyone who God has chosen will get saved. There's no way around it. They will be saved because the sovereign God has already chosen to save them. And those whom God has not chosen, they'll never feel the Holy Spirit. They'll never be drawn. They'll never experience that preparatory grace that softens the heart. And therefore, they'll live their entire lives in sin and then perish and suffer hell forever. I think that's a pretty accurate description of, of, of the way that doctrine's been preached and taught. And again, it comes from verses like this, which plainly say that God predestines us. Those who come to Christ, it was already decided. We didn't choose him. He chose us before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that. But what does it mean? I just remind you that, that, that for a long time, centuries before Calvin came along or even Augustine, that's not the way people closest to Paul and Jesus believe. That's not exactly how the earliest Christians seemed to talk about salvation. It came later. So obviously there's a way of reading this, these verses which doesn't inevitably lead you to a God who chooses in advance who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's not the plan of salvation as it's portrayed in Scripture, as it's revealed in Jesus, is it? So let's talk just briefly about these verses. Romans chapter 8, this passage, and especially Romans chapter 9, which we're not going to read the whole chapter today. But Romans chapter 9 is one of those key chapters that, 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 that some people look at and say, there you go. If you read Romans chapter 9, you have to be a Calvinist. You have to believe in predestination, double-edged, because Romans chapter 9 seems to say it so plainly. How do you get around it? Well, I'm not trying to get around anything. I just want to let Scripture interpret Scripture, not Calvin or any other philosophy or theology. You let Scripture interpret Scripture, which means you got to read the whole book of Romans in order to make sense of any part of Romans. You need to not pick out verses or chapters, but read the whole book. And obviously, Paul is writing to a real church, the church in Rome, and he's answering questions that they were asking. 
He's not necessarily asking the questions that you and I ask. He's not necessarily asking the questions that that Calvinists ask. He's first answering the questions that the church at Rome was asking. And they weren't necessarily asking our questions. They were asking their questions. And what were their questions? What is sort of the big theme in the book of Romans when you read it straight through? And and honestly, the big theme is this tension, this, this problem that comes in explaining how you have Jews and how you have Gentiles in one church. How there's one plan of salvation that saves everybody when the Jews have such a different place, such a different history with God in the plan of salvation. You know what I'm talking about? How the Jews were God's chosen people from the very beginning, from Abraham forward. How the Jews were were rescued from Egypt. How the Jews were given the law of God, the covenant of God. How in all of the world, the Jews became that nation chosen for God to, to work through, to bring salvation to the whole world. Only the Jews didn't always understand that it was the whole world involved. They typically simply understood that that God was for them, that God was their God, and that therefore everything that God had to do was going to center only upon them, the Jews. So there's quite a a, a lot of mind-blowing learning to do when the Jews recognize that their Messiah has come, Jesus has come, that he's died not just for the sins of the Jews, but the sins of the whole world. They never expected that. And now in churches like Rome, you have Jews getting saved and Gentiles getting saved in the very same way. But it's something of a puzzle. And so naturally the question would arise, how do you explain the Gentiles in the plan of salvation? If God from the beginning has been working mostly with the Jewish people, what's God doing now saving Gentiles? Is this like plan B? Is this an afterthought? Is the idea of bringing the rest of the world in, is this something God was always doing? Or is this something new that God is doing? Or is this something God's not doing at all? How do you explain Jews and Gentiles getting saved in the very same way by faith and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ the Messiah? So throughout the book of Romans, Paul's trying to explain that. He talks about how the Jews have sinned. He talks about how the Gentiles have sinned. And then he says in Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he walks straight through and talks about the plan of salvation and how since everybody has the same problem, sin, then everybody has the same solution, Jesus, grace, God's forgiveness. One plan of salvation for the whole human race because the whole human race has one problem, and that is sin. Does that that make sense? So the book of Romans is trying to explain this, how how the one single plan of salvation that, that God has never changed, always intended to not simply save the Jews, but to save the whole world, Jews and Gentiles together. So understand, when Paul talks about predestination, when Paul talks about how God saw this from the very beginning, he's not so much talking about how God chooses individual people. He's talking about nations, Jews and Gentiles. He's talking about in the large scope of things, the sovereign God is sovereign over his own plan of salvation, how he hasn't had to improvise, he hasn't changed plans. He saw from the very beginning that he would save the entire world together by the sacrifice of Jesus and nothing has changed. This is God's sovereign plan. Read Romans and honestly, I'm telling you that's what Paul is trying to say. 
I understand that, that many prominent preachers today are preaching a very, very strong Calvinist message. John Piper, whom I love, and I learn so much from him on a weekly basis, but this is a very strong emphasis of his. He simply says that God created some people to glorify God by his grace through forgiveness and salvation, and God created the rest of the human race to glorify God's wrath by suffering forever in hell. John Piper just simply says that, and he honestly believes that, and he's my brother, I love him, but I strongly disagree with that representation of God's plan of salvation and that representation of God's foreknowledge and God's sovereignty. Because honestly, from Scripture, I see the plan of salvation very, very differently. John chapter 17. Let's take a look at what the Bible itself says about God's plan of salvation. Let's start here. John chapter 17 is the middle of a prayer that Jesus is praying. So interestingly, this is a conversation within the Trinity. This is Jesus, the Son, talking to God the Father. And he's talking about his purpose, his mission. He's talking about his mission of salvation. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 17, 26. He says this, I have revealed you to them. We've been talking about that. God looks like Jesus. If you want to understand God, you look at Jesus. I have revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your, say the word, love. Then your love for me will be in them. Then, so the purpose here is that God's love for Jesus, the love that you have between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this perfect love within the Godhead, the purpose is, is that we would know that love, receive that love, share that love. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. God's plan of salvation is always about his love. Not so much his glory as if God is just some awesome eternal iceberg who simply needs glorification. No, no, no. God is glorious. He doesn't turn that on and off with a switch. It is his love that is dynamic and moves. And it's this relationship of love that we call salvation. This is the purpose of sending Jesus so that God's love will be in us. This is salvation. This is what Jesus has come for. Then your love for me will be in them. Look at what Romans says. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this. God showed his great what? God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Now I agree with John Piper and David Platt and all of those who insist that there's nothing we do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we do to affect it. It is God's work from beginning to end. We are sinners we can't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves worthy. We don't choose him. He chooses us first. God always makes the first move. I agree with that. But God's aim is that we somehow get brought into this loving relationship with him. And that means that God's plan is different. It's not exactly the way others portray it. You have to stick closer to the scriptures and the way scripture portrays a God of love. A God who wants to demonstrate his great love for us. Love can't be forced. Even if you're a being with all power, you could create beings who would simply love you, but is it love if there's no freedom involved? How many of you were ever in elementary school and wanted to know if a girl loved you? Raise your hand, guys. Yeah? Okay. How did you do that? 
I don't know how the kids are doing. Y'all can tell me later how kids do that these days. In the old days, children, we sent notes, paper and pencil, and there was sort of a forum to this. If I wanted to know if the cute girl across the aisle loved me, I would write a note. I would say, dear Faye, do you love me? And then I do what? Circle, yes or no. Y'all still do that? It's worth trying, Sam. It's worth trying, dude. It's worth trying. Yeah. Circle, yes or no. Understand, with love, there must always be the possibility of yes or no. If there is no ability to refuse love, it's not love. I tried that. Didn't you? I thought, uh, maybe if I just alter these choices. So once I wrote a note, I said, dear Laura, do you love me? Yes, maybe. <laughs> yes, maybe. See? See how it works, guys? Yes, maybe. You know what she did? She wrote in. No. I bet she's sorry now. I bet she's sorry now. <laughs> yeah, she ain't sorry. She ain't sorry. <laughs> Love requires freedom. Love requires that. It, it, it can't be genuine love outside of that possibility of refusal. This is the great risk that God takes when he when he includes freedom in the very fabric of creation, and he does. Human free will, it is in the very fabric of creation. And yes, God sets his sovereignty aside for that. If God's going to give you freedom and me freedom, that means that all of the sudden, God doesn't necessarily get everything he wants. Because suddenly you can make choices that God would never have made. That is the risk involved with freedom. But freedom is required if God is going to demonstrate and share his love with us. Love requires freedom. So this is the world that God has made. And this is God's plan of salvation. It, it, it includes freedom. It includes a risk that we would say no to him, but without that risk, then our yes would be meaningless. God could have created robots that simply praise and love him automatically, but automatons are not loving beings. It's no longer knowing and receiving and sharing love. It's something else if it just simply comes without, without any sort of choice. Love can't be forced. It can't be coerced. It simply has to be received and offered back. So however you talk about God's plan of salvation, you always have to factor in that very, very important factor of human freedom. That's why in all those verses about salvation, the, the language tends to be words like whosoever and anyone and everyone. L let me show you, for example, these are verses you know. John 3, 16, read it with me. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that, say the word, 
everyone, so that everyone who believes in him, and belief is voluntary, it can't be forced, it can't be coerced, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The word is everyone, everyone. Keep, keep going, next verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Interestingly, the Greek word for everyone, it means everyone. Everyone. It is not that God makes a choice in advance for you. It is not that you were born into this life and God's already predestined your eternal fate. No, no, no. He has given you a very, very important choice to make. It is a choice to recognize and receive his love for you, to know that he loves you, to know that from the very foundation of the world already, his attention and affection was focused on you, to know that he lovingly wrote out all the pages of the days of your life, that God had this plan for your life, but it is a plan that you have to choose. You can live a very different plan than God ever wanted for you. You have that freedom. God created you for life abundant. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. That's his plan. But you're living some other plan perhaps because you simply refuse to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Do you understand? Notice what 2 Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. God is being patient for your sake. He does not want, say the word, anyone. God does not want anyone to be destroyed. God does not want anyone to perish. God does not want anyone to be destroyed, but God wants everyone to repent. We've said that God sets his sovereignty aside for the sake of saving us. That means God doesn't necessarily get everything he wants because God does not want anyone to perish but wants everyone to be saved. But not everyone gets saved. Whose choice is that? More importantly, whose choice is it whether or not you get saved? Whose choice is it whether or not you come to know the love of the Father and the Son and have that love in your life? Whose choice is it whether or not you ever live that abundant life that Christ came to give you? Whose choice is that? Is that a choice that God made from the very foundation of the world and therefore it's already determined whether or not you'll ever have abundant life or not? Do you really think that, that there's somehow this, this divine secret plan and some of you are already condemned to hell and there's nothing you can do about it? Does that sound like the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of the God who says he does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance? You can't decide for other people but you will decide for yourself. You can't decide for your children, can't decide for your spouse, but when it comes to your own life, you must decide and you will. God does not want you to perish. God does not want you to live in your sin. God does not want you to live with your guilt and your shame. 
God wants to share his love with you and have you offer love back to him. That's why he sets you free in this life. It's why you have this choice to make. And some of you put the choice off. You just keep thinking that somehow not to choose is is to postpone this. No, not to choose is already to make a choice. If, If you don't answer yes, you're telling him no. I've laid a lot of doctrine in front of you today, but most importantly, I just want to lay the gospel in front of you, the, the, the gospel that says God so loved the world, not just some of us, but the world, that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever means you. Will you not answer yes to him? Will you not receive the offer of his salvation? Will you not offer back the love that he's already poured into your life? How can you say no to him? He calls you to salvation. He's calling you now. I'm begging you to respond to his invitation. God loves you. Will you not return that love? Call upon his name. Be saved. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we really don't understand the mystery of your sovereignty, the mystery of your grace. We don't understand the grace that has brought salvation's plan. All we know is that it includes all of us. It includes the world. Lord Jesus, you died for the sins of the whole world. You said that if you would be lifted up, that you would draw all people to you, Lord Jesus. The words are everyone and anyone, and it means me. It means every one of us in this house, Lord, personally, we have a choice to make. It's yes or no. There's no maybe. There's no later. It's yes or no. Lord Jesus, I pray that lost people in the sound of my voice will hear the offer of salvation today and receive it by your grace, by your goodness, by your love, Lord Jesus. You save us. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you save some in this house today, in the cafe, in Sunday school classes, Lord, people who are listening by podcast or watching on video, Lord Jesus, let the word of the gospel ring out. Let men and women, boys and girls be saved because, Lord, we know that you don't want anyone to perish. Lord Jesus, we lift you up high today, asking you to draw all people to you. We pray in your holy and precious name.